The Two Mats is brought to you by the New European. If you like the contents of this podcast, The Two Mats, if you're a regular listener, you're going to love The New European. And I've got a very special subscription offer for you for just a pound a week or two pounds a week if you want the newspaper. And that's the price of a bottle of water, folks, a small bottle of water. You can get The New European delivered to your door every week and you'll be supporting great independent journalism and you'll be kicking back against the corrosive nationalism that helped bring Brexit to Britain's shores. You'll also get a £25 voucher to spend at The New European shop and you can get a great book we've just published on the Battle of Orgreave or you can get a t-shirt or you can get a mug or you can get a great bollocks to Brexit passport cover. So do the right thing please, support this podcast and also support The New European. Go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash two mats. That's the number two, M-A-T-T-S and there's a link in the show notes. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to the New Ethiopian Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the New European Podcast. My name's Richard Porritt, and I'm joined by Matt Withers. Hello there. And Cash Boyle. Hello. How is everyone? Yeah, all right. Yeah, not bad. <laughs> a jolly bunch we are this week, aren't we? That's the level I, I we've reached. I get jollier reached. as the podcast goes on. I'll be absolutely giddy by the end. Oh, really? So Cash has opened her first drink. Um, so that's good news, ladies and gentlemen. Um, uh, right. So, well, what a week. We will do the news, as always. Um I, I probably should add that if you come here just for your news, and I knew know at this time last year a lot of you did just come here for your news, and we encourage that. Again, still probably not the best idea, um, because not only have we got uh, a pandemic uh, going on, we're also teetering on the edge of uh, a deal slash no deal. So you might want to keep up to date with that on the New European website or wherever else you might want to get your slightly more up-to-date than news, because uh, as we were saying just before we came on air, probably any news we tell you in the next sort of 20 minutes or so will be out of date by the time you listen to it, but we'll try and make it fun nonetheless. Then we've got a superb guest, a, a proper top roller, a real hard hitter, Jason Solomons, who is up there with um, with the UK's best um, film critics uh, knows everything about uh, the silver screen. He's going to be talking to us about Crocker Gold, which is this new, um, I, I hasten to say, rockumentary because it sounds like something that should have been on VH1 in like 1992. Uh, but this documentary film about Shane McGowan is a fascinating character. Um, so he will be on a little bit later on. And then, of course, we will have 
cash and burn uh, right at the end. So stick with us for that. But I guess we should just dive in, guys. And um, I suppose the main news is that uh, Boris Johnson went for dinner with a lady. <laughs> yeah, that's very much very much news, isn't it? Um, do you want me to nose off on this? Go for it. So we're recording this um, Thursday afternoon. As you've already alluded to, chances are that everything will be dated by the time that people come to listen to this uh, Friday morning at the earliest. So we know that last night, uh, a very dishevelled Boris Johnson and David Frost uh, arrived. In that picture's brilliant, isn't it? The picture. That picture is, is, <laughs> is magnificent. It's literally just like his negotiating acumen in a picture. It's just ridiculous. If you haven't seen this picture, dear listener, please do dig it out because um, Mr. Frost and Mr. Johnson arrived looking like they slept in a hedge, um, whereas uh, Ursula... And um, who's who is uh, the Europe? Oh, it's um, it's uh, Barney, of course. Michelle Barney, yeah. Um, he's look, uh, uh, they're looking sharp, pin sharp, looking like they've got tailored suits on. Um, whereas Boris and, and Mr. Frost look like they, they uh, maybe they had a few few drinks on the flight over, shall we say? They look like they've been in the in the airport Weatherspoons. So. <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That 7 a.m. pint that is only allowed in an airport or on a train. <laughs> and I only was... if they have a substantial meal, though. <laughs> yes, which they did. Can, can I make just a quick sort of point from the perspective that if, if a female political leader like Theresa May, for example, if she had gone over looking as disheveled as those two, those two, I guarantee there would have been so much more said about it. Like, and I don't want to take it down that that tangent specifically, but I just, when I looked at the picture, I thought, you know, a female leader would probably be judged a lot more harshly because he, I mean, he he looks he looks terrible. They both do. Well, I think but, you're I think you're right, and I think it's a I think it's an interesting point. Now, Theresa May, for all her failings, was a very sharp dresser. Yeah, and wasn't she's, like I don't know, didn't routinely look like she'd been in the airport weatherspoons. Nah, she well, I don't think she's probably ever been in a, in a <laughs> yeah, an airport true. weatherspoons. But she she was a very a very snappy dresser and a good dancer. Um, <laughs> we haven't seen Boris dance, of course, yet, but maybe we will do. Mm. Uh, but yes, no, I think that's a, I think it's a fair point. Um, but then you know, here we are. We're just commenting on, on on these two males' appearance. So maybe oh. we're trying to redress the balance a little. Yeah. On the picture, um, earlier today, I was writing the New European website's weekly guide to who's on um, Question Time this week, which people can find on Thursday mornings on the neweuropean.co.uk. And I was writing about Wes Streeting, who's Labour's representative tonight. And he actually tweeted out that picture um, last night, so Wednesday night, mm. uh, with the, just the comment, the absolute state of this. Mm. Um, and the Express Online instantly ran a story about a social media backlash against Wes Streeting. And the poor reporter, who's obviously been told by his desk that he's got to concoct some kind of backlash out of this, managed to find two tweets critical of him for saying this and, and, and bash that out into about 600 words. So uh, God bless him. Interesting, interesting times, though, with regards to office wear, isn't it? Because um, I commissioned a story this week about Zoom casual. I'm currently being paid to sit in a pair of jeans and a pink Levi sweater. Um, I'm also wearing a snood. This time last year, I certainly would not be dressed like this on a work day. Um, I know, Mr. Withers, that you are a very snappy dresser. Um, and I also like to wear a suit. But is the suit dying? Maybe Boris should have gone with some of the, you know, like, you know, like footballers 
that sort of I think footballers have been doing Zoom casual, Zoom smart or Zoom casual, whatever it's called, for a long time on um, when they appear on Sky Sports or oh, whatever. Yeah, like you know, some to... sort of like Downing Street sort of like apparel with like yeah, a logo yeah. on. And, oh no, no, I mean like no, I mean like um, uh, Jimmy Redknapp and you know yeah. the when they do the analysis of it and they're oh, not yes, like full on suit, but they're smart. They've mm. sort of been nearly in this for years, those guys. Gary Neville. Uh, yeah, Car- Pep Guardiola is a fan of that kind of smart, sort of casual look. So maybe Boris, maybe mm. Carrie needs to have a chat with Boris and get him some dark blue jeans, a little bit, little bit tight, and some of those shoes that are not quite shoes, not quite trainers, you know? Strong. He what? would definitely look like a man of the people then. <laughs> I, I have to say, I'm, I'm continuing to try to dress as close to the office as possible. So I do have a, a, a smart, freshly pressed dark blue shirt on today. I think there's something about that that kind of almost helps you embody that professionalism. Like, so if you're dressed sharply, it's almost like it gives you, it focuses the mind a little bit more, I think. Mm. I was with Johnson, and I mean, there is a serious point. People always say that these things are baked in, aren't they? And the fact that, that he he does look like he's been dragged backwards through a hedge is is something that people kind of find um, endearing and, and authentic uh, about him, whereas a lot of us look at him and think, you know, grow up, man. Well, my yeah. mother would definitely lick a tissue and uh, rub his face with it. <laughs> yeah. if, if he was and you got a little schmutz there, like just get at him. Um, but uh, anyway, who, who knows whether that will? <laughs> who knows whether Mr. Frost and Mr. Johnson's um, appearance will make any difference whatsoever? And of course, the important bit is that we still, as it stands now at uh, mid-afternoon on on Thursday, have no deal and. Uh, Dominic Raab saying that it, the talks are unlikely to go on beyond Sunday. Yeah, I mean, realistically, um, they can't. You know, there's been mm. some talk today, various social media mutterings that the could, you know, the transition period could be extended. I mean, nip that one straight away in the bud. There is absolutely nothing um, in European Union law which would allow it to be extended. That chance is gone. That chance went kind of early summer when the government decided they weren't going to extend it beyond December the 31st. So it's not that there's a lack of willing there, although there certainly is from the UK side. Um, but legally, um, that that door is very much, very much closed. Um, so it, it looks to me, and I've changed my mind, I've changed my mind so, so much. Last mm. time I was here a couple of weeks ago, I, I thought we were looking at some kind of bare bones deal that Johnson would be able to hold up as some magnificent triumph for his, his statecraft. Um, we're essentially heading for no deal due to the government's insistence on retaining the freedom to diverge on regulations and standards. Mm. Something it has repeatedly insisted it has no intention of doing. Politically, probably wouldn't. You know, they're, they're not going to retain those red wall seats, um, so-called red wall, as I always, as I always prefix it. Um, by stripping back regulations and, and standards. But this seems to be uh, the ditch in which the UK government is willing to die. And as much as the the negotiations such as they are are going on at the moment, I think they're less to do with getting a deal and more with Johnson talking about exploring every avenue possible. I think that language is about him being able at the end of this to say, well, we did as much as we could 
and it's their fault that we're getting no deal. Don't blame us. This was the big bad Europeans. We we tried strained every sinew, but they weren't prepared to meet us halfway. I think you know political theatre is a, a phrase that's being used a lot at the moment. Yeah. But this is all being crafted for the cameras for the next stage after December the thirty first. Cash. Yeah. So I think um, a point that Matt made there that was really interesting was the idea that the because the the two the parallels are non-regression which is what the uk had kind of agreed which is basically that the uk won't regress as matt said on its current regulatory standards that's what the uk wants the eu wants to go a step further and have what's called dynamic alignment which basically means if the eu sort of 27 it'll be 27 um if they move things forward in terms of regulation the uk will come with but brexiteers interpret that as a the EU are still going to be dictating and defining our laws. And that's something that they just, it's just not palatable for them. So as Matt said, why would the UK, if they have no intention of rolling back on uh, regulations anyway, why would they be so sort of against, you know, wiggling on, on this particular point? Because it's, it's something that they've got no intention. They've got no intention of rolling things back. So why would they not just sort of give a little bit more to the <clears throat> EU in terms of, what they want, which is obviously this concept that's called dynamic alignment, which I've read around and still don't fully know what it means. But what I do know is that it just, it's perceived by Brexiteers to be the EU trying to have a more of a stranglehold on UK sort of regulation when it's just not, that's not the case. So as, as Matt said, I think that's, it's a very peculiar ditch to for the UK government to die on, but it seems to be something that ardent Brexiteers, for them, the genesis of Brexit is, we want complete autonomy over everything, including obviously ability to dictate our own regulations and blah, blah, blah. And anything beyond that or any sort of EU input beyond that is essentially keeping the relationship closer than what Brexit is meant to sort of break, if that makes sense. So yeah, I mean, I, I'm with my, I think it's a very odd ditch to, to die on. And the unfortunate thing is, I know they've set a deadline of Sunday for the, these talks to to end but as far as I can tell the two things seem diametrically opposed to each other and I just don't I, I feel like no matter how many three course meals Boris Johnson has mm-hmm. with um with Ursula von der Leyen I never can mm-hmm. pronounce her name yeah. um no matter how many three course meals he has with her if two camps are diametrically opposed in their views I don't see either seeding and, and truthfully we all know in this scenario the EU needs to seed much less than the UK does mm-hmm. so from that perspective this does seem to be the really decisive issue and it seems to have reached an impasse. And as Matt said, it's a weird sort of area to kind of really die on as it mm. were. Mm. Right, a couple of, couple of pieces. Uh, firstly, um, I, I found it strange from the beginning of the um, revelation that Boris and Ursula were going to sit down for a meal. Everyone keeps calling it a three course meal. Um, am I so achingly middle class now that um, I, I don't see a three-course meal as being anything that special? Or it's a bit like um, <laughs> when you have people railing against levels of, of um, benefits. They say that people spend it on flat-screen TVs. They are literally <laughs> the only sort of TV you can yeah. get these days. We can't yeah. buy the ones that look like enormous boxes. I mean, I if I had you... someone, if I had someone round and I was, you know, trying to do a deal with them, I, I guess I'd probably give them a starter and a 
and a pudding as well. I'm like I mean, imagining like a come dine with me scenario in which you're trying to like flesh out the Brexit deal and then like it's Boris Johnson going back in a cab at the end, like ranking the whole scenario. <laughs> but no, you're right. Superb. Like it's, it's, it's bizarre. And I think like, yeah, the reason I think I said three course meal, I guess that's probably just because that's largely what's been written. And I guess. Yeah, yeah. no, it's, it's, it's what's but, been said about it. But it. What's interesting, I think about it is that maybe in subconsciously, I feel like three courses that's enough to get make some tangible progress because if you just bring out like one like some tapas or like one measly starter that's probably not enough to make you know to make tangible progress just but if you throw out three courses i feel like you should be able to make some headway by the end of dessert i don't know i i i, I want more than three courses these days i've i feel like i've gone up in the world you know i want <laughs> i want I, for my i had a big birthday this year and i had seven courses oh but I didn't. Did you, I was, the, did you have like the number of forks? You know, like they do, like sort of where you've got like six forks, six knives. It had to be held at um, Wagamama's to fit all the forks on. You know, we had one <laughs> bench each. Um, it, Matt, can you tell us what the menu was? Because it is interesting. Yes, I can both tell you uh, what the menu was and what uh, its symbolism is, if you'd like that as well. <laughs> yes, um, Excellent. So, so they started with uh, pumpkin soup and Ugh. scallops. So Ugh. scallops are apparently a profitable catch for English fishermen, but after a no-deal Brexit, they'll be subject to 20% tariffs. <laughs> um, and, and it is an important point because uh, people forget, and I'll come on to the main thing, people forget with the whole... Um, argument over fishing is that we can catch as much as we want we're still going to have to export it because a lot of the stuff that we catch off the coast of of the uk are not the sort of fish that are a big part of the british diet i mean i don't know about you guys i can't remember the last time i had scallops oh i in seven cost meal for my birthday ah uh, okay well that's i think um, I've, i don't think i don't know if i've ever eaten scallops no you know i have i have but like once but if you're going to eat scallops, don't have them in pumpkin soup. That just would ruin the scallop, in my opinion. I've never heard scallops being used to make a political point before. <laughs> um, I mean, it, there always is a kind of uh, an underlining with, with these things. But I mean, it does, well, there is according to journalists. <laughs> um, well, yeah, possibly. But, you know, it is a reminder for, for the, the, the UK that, you know, you catch these, these, these scallops, but they're only profitable to you because they're exported to the EU, to countries where mm. uh, fish is a much more important part of the national diet or certain fish are than who. And 20% tariffs are going to make them much less profitable because people aren't going to pay that markup. Very good. Well, that's very clever. Tell us about the pumpkin bit then. Uh, the pumpkin. Are, are they grown? <laughs> Halloween I, reference or something. I don't, I don't know. I don't know where pumpkins are grown. Um, the, the main was uh, steamed turbot, uh, mashed potatoes with wasabi and vegetables. So the UK was allowed to catch 11.4% of the total EU allowable catch of turbot and brill in the North Sea in 2019. And it's exactly the same as the first point, really, that turbot and brill is predominantly consumed as part of the Mediterranean diet. Mm -hmm. um, and so will need to be sold onto those European markets, which, again, is going to be less appealing once these whacking great tariffs are applied to them. Or we start eating turbot. I mean, I've certainly never had turbot. I don't know well, about I, you guys. I have. I've had, uh, I've had turbot. A very nice uh, restaurant in Bulgaria a few years ago. Could you batter it and put salt and vinegar on it? No, it's not. I mean, 
No, it's not. It's not. Not that, that kind of. Not that yeah. kind of setup. It, it, mm. No, it's. It's. It, I mean, I guess you could batter anything and put. Well, yes, ask the Scots. Yes. Um, uh, I. I wouldn't. I wasn't going to be so lazy as to go there. Um, <laughs> so theoretically, you could batter turbot. No, it's more of a more of a grilled fish. And the dessert was fishery. So that was pavlova with exotic fruit, as it's put here, and uh, coconut sorbet. Well, exo- what's exotic fruit? Is that is is that like I don't know? <laughs> it's got a bikini on and it's doing a dance. Yeah, like, you know? <laughs> is it like fruit that's like beyond the EU twenty seven? It's like sort of I don't know. What is it? Is it, I, I'm I'm just imagining like an Asda kind of frozen pack of berries, but that they've just like dressed up to make it look exotic. You know what, Theresa May, she's come up in this podcast more, I think, now than she has since she left number ten. You know, Theresa May's um, signature dishes. Oh. It's going to be something incredibly British and it will be. It'll be like it'll be like shepherd's pie. No, no, no. It's not. It's 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 European, but with a very weird twist. Um, She supposedly cooks a mean chicken lasagna. Oh, Um, interesting. Am I a terrible individual that I find that imagery quite endearing? Like I should hate Theresa May, but I but I find that I don't. And the idea of her cooking a chicken lasagna, like dancing badly to like Abba in her kitchen, yeah, with those just trousers, endears on. me. <laughs> with those nine hundred pound leather trousers, <laughs> I, I I've never had a, a chicken lasagna. Um, I did have a sausage meat lasagna recently, which was um, I mean, I thought lasagna was cooked with beef. It well, is. It- it's one, of, it's one of those, isn't it? Like the argument that they were having in the European Parliament a few weeks back about what legally constitutes, say, a sausage, and is it the fact that it <laughs> contains meat? This was a this was a big argument that's been been going on. I was not aware of this argument, and I really yeah, yeah. So, I'm but invested. basically, the 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 argument is, um, and it's being pursued very much by the meat lobby that um, a vegetarian sausage and a vegetarian burger are not sausages or burger because the name. Um, implicitly means it contains it contains meat whereas you could make the argument that a sausage is the containing of a substance within that form of packaging and that was the legalistic argument that they were having and i don't know how i got here but i think it goes back to does lasagna mean it's got beef in or is it the nature of the dish which can contain therein any other ingredient well, maybe the listeners can tell us on Twitter about um, does lasagna, is that the pasta bit or is it the meat? Oh, I don't know. But what I will say is that the European Union arguing about what constitutes a sausage. Um, is exactly it, why we're leaving. It's exactly, <laughs> exactly why certain people thought we should leave. Um, but anyway, they, they often don't do themselves any favours. Um, what, what has happened since, of course, uh, is that the EU now... Um, I, I, have set out their no deal contingency plans um which kind of seems to me to be we'll just carry on as it was so there will be a status quo on fishing um connectivity with regards to air and road and all that kind of thing does that not sort of suggest that they would go a bit further than i know we've talked about the legalities of it but there's always a workaround when it comes to lawyers if you pay them enough um, does that not suggest that they they will go well? You know, we maybe we will go into January. Maybe we will go a bit further. Now. I think they'll continue negotiating into January. I just think that the end of the transition period is a non-negotiable, like Matt said earlier. Yeah. So, like legally, you can't alter that. But you, it's almost like 
I think at this point, truthfully, they'd be happy to have something resembling a framework in place, allow the transition period to end, and then almost sort of say, well, we'll, you know, we'll do these additional bits after. Um, well, I agree it, that's with what you it feels completely. like to me in terms of the timing, because you can't, the, not, the one non-negotiable is the end of the, the transition period, but what yes. you do after that is obviously up to the parties. Well, so after, after so that, I you essentially start from, you start from scratch. You know, it, we, this weekend is the end point because mm. if there's a, if it's to get passed by both the European Parliament and the UK Parliament, it realistically needs <laughs> to be signed off by the end of this week because it will have to go before all those countries. It will have to be translated into every language. It's going to be, you know, we're talking 750 plus pages. I mean, no, 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 no. They all, they all speak English. It's fine. <laughs> if, if they don't well, understand I mean, it, just do it in capital letters. I mean, the answer most of them do. Emmanuel Macron speaks uh, immaculate English, but yeah. no, no self-respecting French president is going to sign off on a deal that's 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 not uh, en français. <laughs> so that work needs to be done to get it in front of the the European. And, but and the I think Matt, what was and you, of course, I absolutely understand what you're saying about the transition period, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But if the EU is now saying, well, our contingency is that everything will just be the same come January the first, then. Why? Why? Uh, why is there this mad rush? I don't think it, I don't think it will be the same. I think in, in an awful lot of areas there's going to be a, a great deal of, of differences. And I, I, I know they're talking about signing off little mini deals um, in particular areas like um, you know medicines, probably yeah. security, law and order, uh, travel, um, flights to stop flights theoretically being grounded because of the operating licenses of the aeroplanes and things like that they could get worked around because that's the way that the eu works but in terms of a an actual um broader trade agreement by that point the uk is an absolute third party so it's yeah. not it's not a knock-on from the negotiations that we've been having interminably for the best part of the last four years we basically go to the position where north macedonia and Montenegro and I think Albania are now, which is um, absolute bottom-up trade negotiations, uh, or you know the one the one that went on for kind of the best part of nine years with Canada. That's the kind of level we'll be starting from. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, no, absolutely. I think like it's maybe that's a really good question, Richard, in terms of you know why why is there the mad rush from an EU perspective? And I mean, I guess I don't actually know because from what I can tell you know, the need for a deal is obviously so much more important for the UK in respect of, you know, the impact and the changes that there will be here. But presumably the EU as a collective, there's probably something statutory to back this up, have to obviously negotiate in good faith and, you know, in earnest to try and secure this deal. Because if they were to essentially not try and help the UK secure a deal, even at the 11th hour, that could be perceived obviously negatively you know, obviously worldwide. Whereas I think if they can say by the end, well, we cooperated throughout, we did X, Y, and Z, we worked expediently and we made, you know, the relevant compromises and we still couldn't reach a deal. Then I think they come out of it looking, you know, um, looking better than if they just sort of tried to frustrate the process. Yes. And this is why I think... Can I just say, I think the the EU is, is, as you've alluded to there, absolutely bound in by its own law. The the EU is a highly um, legalistic organization i know people talk about how they always find a, a fix at the 11th hour but it's highly legalistic the, the, the uk government was offered that opportunity 
earlier in the summer to extend it. And for political reasons, uh, even though, you know, we knew a second wave of coronavirus was coming, the, the, the UK government chose not to extend that. So legally, nothing can be, you know, the EU is is hoist by mm. its own, its, its own um, legalistic framework. Mm. And I think to extend it any more beyond what they've managed to do now would have to reopen the entire Lisbon Treaty. Um, and that would be fun and games. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's I mean, mess. truthfully, <laughs> it shouldn't. By both, I mean, truthfully, and I think we're all obviously pro-EU, um, like, largely, but I think truthfully, both parties are hugely responsible for the fact that, okay, coronavirus has clearly played, a ro- uh, played an important role, and I'm not dismissing that, but I just think, you know, you have two years from the moment you trigger Article 50, and I feel like, you know, there is real negligence on the part of, in, on the respect of both parties, in terms of allowing it to dwindle to this point where whatever deal you reach will be somewhat, the percentage is obviously unclear, but it will be somewhat influenced by the fact that there's a ticking clock. Um, I think the best things often, well, the best things always in life are done with the amount of, the right amount of time and sort of scope to think it through clearly and properly, but whatever we end up with, it will be somewhat rushed and that's not conducive to it being good for anyone. That's a very good point. And I think... um... I mean, the, 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 this whole thing, whether you voted uh, leave or remain, has been a series of political failures as I knock over. You literally speaker. kicked the bucket. Uh, I did, yeah. Um, a series of political failures. Whenever, in my opinion, a referendum is called, that is a political failure because we, um, we elect people um, and then for them to throw back their power to us is a political failure in my opinion so the fact that there was a referendum in the first place is a, is a failure of our politics um, our politicians have uh, you know let us down again and again and again uh, since that moment and uh, you know I am also I love Europe as a place I love Europe as a country I'm I would be delighted if we were still part of the EU but I also recognize its failings mm. and there have been political failures on the part of Europe as well and this is not like people talk about um, this is a negotiation as if you're buying a, a second-hand car it's not the case because there is <laughs> Certainly, we're very well aware of it from the UK, uh, UK's point of view. Matt um, put it perfectly earlier on when we were talking about Boris Johnson thinking about if it doesn't go right, who can I blame? But the same thing is happening on the EU side. Politics is very much in play here. It is not just about getting a deal. It's about what will my, you know, what is what is my electability on the back of this? Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, just sorry, Richard, I just that just really made me think about the fact that the entire thing has been political from the get go. If you look at why did David Cameron call the referendum, Mm -hmm. he wanted to secure his political legacy. There's Mm -hmm. there was no other reason. So that the catalyst began with the the very catalyst for it in terms of the person who called the referendum was for political gain and, and, and enrichment. And it brings in the wider point that the people that are negotiating this deal uh, or lack of deal, both on the UK and EU side, although obviously I'm more familiar with the UK side, they are, to a man or woman, the people that won't be practically as affected by the consequences of a no-deal Brexit as the ordinary working-class person. Let's have this right. It's We're in a situation where that's why so many rich um, you know, owners of companies like you know Jim Ratcliffe, uh, the guy who owns Dyson, forgot his first name, you know, they all are massive Brexiteers and yet they are moving their offices out of the UK to countries where they could obviously benefit from that framework. So 
there's a real overarching point to be made in respect of the people who are making this deal, who are trying to make this deal, if it doesn't come to pass, they're going to be less affected by its consequences than the likes of any of us. Can I just make a point on referenda more generally, just coming on from what both of you have said? Oh, is the point, is it referenda or referendums? Because oh. I would, you know, both are fine. Both, both are, fine. are fine. I looked into this. I looked into this because I wrote the European Style Guide and I did look into it and both are fine. The, oh, the I didn't know that. Good yeah. yeah. Um, the problem goes back and, and I... I agree. I, I think um, referenda are wrong. I think that for, for scoundrels, um, there's a lot of sirens in uh, the East End of London today. You're probably picking. Yeah, they're that heading up. towards Downing um, Street. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and the problem, particularly with this one, and Cash is absolutely right. It, it, this this referendum was called as an exercise in party management. But I have struggled ever since to think of another example um, in modern history, uh, and this is not just including the UK where a government has called a referendum where the change option on the ballot wasn't backed by the government. Yeah. Every other referendum I can think of, what they're asking for, mm. whether it was, you know, New Labour with um, introducing devolution to, to Scotland and Wales and uh, the Mayor of London, or even the unsuccessful one for a, um, a, a, an assembly in the northeast of England. Every... Um, every ballot that was put forward the change option was the one the government explicitly that's backed. a really good point i'd never thought about it like that was a really Although, good where difference. do we stand on the scottish referendum well that was one that that's was a tricky one isn't it because it was, it was forced, forced by the, the scottish government, government yeah. and, and the other the other one and, and this is this is one that's i think lost to history unless you read david cameron's um memoirs in which case he devotes about 40 pages to it the long forgotten um uh, alternative vote referendum. Oh, I haven't yeah. forgotten about that. I'm I am very passionate about that actually. Uh, that was kind of bad because obviously the Lib Dems were, you know, in favour. Although I think Nick Clegg described it as a very mealy-mouthed uh, form of PR, and the Tories um, were against. But the the wider point is, if a, if a government calls a referendum, it is because they wish to get popular consent for yeah. a big constitutional change mm. they want to make, and yeah. to call this vote wanting. The, the small C conservative keep it as it is option. History will remember that to be an incredibly wild, to put it put it mildly, mm. uh, decision for a prime minister to take. Well, it's a, there's some fascinating um, election science to be had there, and I'm sure we'll. I'm, I'm I'm a fan of how to win elections and uh, and all that kind of thing, and it'll be it'll be fascinating to see whether there are lessons to be learned by governments there as to how, you know, what you call a referenda or referendums. Well, I, I um, actually upon... think the point that Ma has made is really like a, a really salient one in the sense that the fact that this referendum departed from the norm in respect of the government calling it wasn't advocating for change. It was advocating to maintain the current position. I think all that does is emphasize the fact that it was purely a political play. Yeah. Well, we, I mean, you know, the Tories, um, have uh, struggled with Europe since the seventies. It's been an issue uh, since since that point, and it has it has been the the bane of pretty much every one of their leaders' lives. And I think I guess Cameron just wanted to wanted to lance that boil, and uh, unfortunately he didn't. And what we will find is that it will continue. Whatever happens now, mm. the Conservatives, who you know, with 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 the with the right leader in place next time, could 
you know, stand a pretty good chance, I would suggest, to beating Keir Starmer. Um, obviously, that leader will not be Boris Johnson, but it, it will still be a problem because this is a party that has no overriding ideology. Um, and there will always be a pro-European wing and a, a, an anti-European wing in the Tories. Um, I think that's a really good point. I, I think it's a good point that I disagree entirely with. Well, it's good because, you know what, I was thinking about five minutes ago, oh, my God, we, it's, it, since we've had this, this thruple that we now have, all we've done is agree with each other. So I'm glad you disagree. You're wrong, but tell me why. Because I think that the the Johnson stroke vote leave takeover of the Conservative Party now has made it a much, much narrower church than it's been any time since, you know, the Corn Laws. I, I was reading, um, there was a Decker Aikenhead interview with um, Amber Rudd in the Sunday Times magazine mm. last week. Um, yeah. And, you know, she came, came, came out of it very well uh you know a little arrogant but it, and I, I was thinking wow there is no place for this type of person in the conservative party anymore and, and that's you know fascinating to think that that kind of wing the kind of i would call it the ken clark wing uh, yeah, yeah. have been complete you know philip hammond is considered mm. too left wing for the, yeah. for the modern i know they've given him a, a peerage to kind of buy him buy him off but <clears throat> it's very if you look at the the most recent two intakes, particularly the last one of the Conservative Party in the Commons, they are not Tories like we used to know. You know, you're, you're right in how it used to be, the Conservative Party. The, the, it was a massively broad issue, but the current intake, and I suspect this is true for the wider membership, are ideologues like Conservatives never, never yeah. were. They're, they're, they price um, sovereignty above absolutely everything um including business so it's gonna be very interesting to see where that business vote goes right over, over the next few years so i no, think I, you... I think it's, it's a very narrow ideological party now this is the, a very good point um but what i would say is that the conservative party has been the you know the party of power in this country for you know by and large the last sort of hundred years or so um since the since let's say since the since the uh since the the rise of the labor party the the conservatives have been in power more than more than uh more than labor and the reason is because they shift to where the voter is and the voter in this country brexit or no brexit is still in the center if you have the center ground you win the general election Boris Johnson won the last general election because he was more, believe it or not, centrist than Jeremy Corbyn. Now, we've seen how quickly the Labour Party can, can switch. That same thing will happen to the Tories. And the Tories will knife any leader in the back if it means clinging on to power. You and... say that, but I, I mean, I'm going to disagree now slightly. I'm going to start with a <laughs> but you, you, ah, say... you two, get off my pod. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you, you say that, and I do take the point that they will probably try and like adapt to whatever position allows them to preserve power because I can't remember which political commentator said a few weeks ago in an article I read, but basically the, the, the Tory kind of, you know, mandate is just power, have power, conserve it, yeah. preserve it, make sure we don't lose it. You know, that's, that's the mandate. And that I, I do agree with that, but as Matt said, the new intake coupled with what will be a, an increasingly emboldened sort of more right of that party because of obviously Brexit and, you know, potentially if there's a no deal, I think Tory attempts to sort of go more toward the centre ground that you've said, Richard, secures election victories. I think that's completely incompatible with what is becoming an increasingly dominant force within the Conservative Party. So how can you have a Conservative Party that's populated by a new intake of ideologues 
and you know a real ERG kind of real real sort of focus on sovereign a real sovereignty sovereignty pardon me centric arm of the party how can you have those two factions hugely populating the party but then try and shift it as a leader to the center i just don't think that's compatible at all well, that's very dependent on your majority and they've got a fairly yeah, healthy true. That is true. That also is say is i've spent a lot of time um around mps and um when they come you in said that was such a heavy heart uh, you know, I don't dislike MPs as much as the general public. I think the majority of them actually work quite hard, whether I agree with them or not. But the, they, they all come in saying, I will stand up and do this, and this is my beliefs, and then the whips get in their ear. And um, if it, it, let, you know, let's, play, let's play fantasy politics, right? Rishi Sunak, in a year's time, is the um, leader of the Conservative Party, okay? He's... He's clean with regards to Brexit, et cetera, et cetera. And the, he, he decides... We don't really know what Rishi Sunak's politics are. We, there's a, there's a, a suggestion that they might be actually a bit more right-wing than, than a lot of the general public believe. Because I think they way, are. Yeah, because of the way that he's had, had to be um, uh, the Chancellor this year. But let's say that he goes... Right, they're, they're struggling in the polls. Keir Starmer's knocking on number 10's door, basically. He, he, he won't go, oh, I've got an 80-seat majority. I'm going to listen to the ERG. We're not nearly as powerful as they were this time last year or this time two years ago, by the way. Yeah. Um, he, he will go, I'm going to go towards where Keir's getting these votes. He will, because exactly the point that I think we can all agree on that you made earlier on um, uh, I think it was Matt, was that the, the, the Tories will do anything they can to conserve power. And that is, I, I, I absolutely stand by that. Don't be thrown off by a new intake because a new intake also want to keep their jobs. And politicians um, are unique in a sense that they can, they often lose their jobs, even if they're very good at their jobs because of what their boss does. So they will, if they're, you know, if, they, if they're going to align themselves to something that makes them more electable nationally, they will do it. And they will shut up and sit at the back of the, sit at the, sit at the, back of the commons. What's interesting about that point that you just made at the end is that actually the reverse is also true because you get some MPs who are in safe seats, be it Labour or Conservative, to keep their jobs even though they're pretty shit. Um, yeah, well, that's more true of the Tories, absolutely right. And um, that is a great issue we have um, in great swerves of the country, but certainly here in the east of England, has got some really awful, awful MPs um, yeah. in, in Tory seats. But there's, there's similarly, there are some pretty crap um, Labour MPs yeah, agreed. Um, as well who keep hold of their seats. Uh, I can think of one who used to be leader, actually. Um, <laughs> hangs on to his seat simply by wearing uh, a red rosette. Um, any predictions, guys? I know that's a, that's a fool's game, probably, when it comes to Brexit. Um, but we're we're saying nothing beyond Sunday. Matt, what do you think? Um, I, I think I've um, nailed. I, I've not nailed my colours. You have. I, I think you have. I blue tacked. <laughs> I blue tacked my colours to the. Uh, to the no, no, no. It's more than that. I think what you've done is you've got one of those. Um, you know those sticky Velcro things that if you if you live in a rental property, you used to put pictures on the wall. I've, <laughs> I've got those keeping my dartboard up. <laughs> you've got a dartboard. Yeah, I've got a dartboard in the living room. Pieces on it. <laughs> do you live mine? Probably. Do you live in like uh, London Fields? Are, are you, do you living in a Martin Amis book? Uh, I do live. I do literally live, live in, in London Hackney, Fields. <laughs> 
I do live in London Fields and I've got a dartboard. Fantastic. Um, Mr. John Self himself. Actually, that's money, isn't it? Not London Fields. Very good. So do you play darts then in your front Yeah, room? I do. And uh, <laughs> and I can't remember what happened to it. There was a... Do you eat pork scratchings and drink uh, a pint of light? You're making I mean... him sound like a guy in a pub in like Lancashire. <laughs> um, there was a film that was due to come out. Um uh, a couple of years ago, I think this was with Johnny Depp and maybe Amber Heard or so. It's been of London Fields. I don't think it. Oh, I don't think it ever happened. Ever it? came out. But the guy who's who was brought in to teach Johnny Depp how to play um, darts um, to make it look <laughs> realistic. I do know. I do know a little bit actually. Really? Um, well, that's bizarre because I think I can't remember the protagonist. I, I think London Fields is overrated. I love Martin Amis, but I think London Fields is overrated. But the guy who I presume. Johnny Depp was going to play. It was an overweight sort of builder, I think, wasn't he? I can imagine Johnny Depp playing that character. Yeah, uh, or, or indeed any character in any film ever again. <laughs> Richard, also... you, mean, you won't be surprised by this given last week's sort of content, but I have not seen that movie. Well, I don't think anyone has. I don't think anyone. No, has, so I'm, not, yeah. I'm not missing out. You're, you're, you're not, although um, I would very much recommend reading Money by Martin Amis, which is one of the mm. greatest books ever written. London I feels really like reading. London Fields is is well worth a look as well, and then you will see how ridiculous it is that Johnny Depp has been brought in to play uh, play that. Um, play would that anyone part. else pay to watch Matt Withers play darts? I certainly would. I think we need to get that on social media. I'm trying to figure out your so Christmas Day around the Withers household. Is it like um, a bit like uh, Bullseye? Um, you know the the serious darts. I do like I do like Bullseye. Hey, I I have actually played a game against Phil the Power Taylor. Wow. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. That's a good. That's a good. That's a good fact. So um, you're one of those guys that goes off to is it Blackpool? You know, between Christmas and New Year, and gets drunk and watches uh, watches darts, Matt. Uh, well, I mean, you're getting into. Uh, Do you sing into, like that? Well, like where they go like 180. You get you're getting into the uh, the politics of darts. I could. You, this is getting into big things, but but and up until this year, I went to the BDO World Championships in Frimley Green oh every God. year, every year without fail. Um, and because people won't know, this year it moved to the uh, the O2 in London, but obviously not the proper O2, the nightclub in the in the O2 and now the BDO has gone bust because it was run by a group of clowns so it's not the one that you'll see on TV <laughs> which is the one at Ali Pali which is the PDO World Championships and for about 30 years there were two rival darts world championships the BDO and the PDC the BDO went on this year so the only world championship is welcome the to the new European <laughs> darts podcast ladies Look, and gentlemen you, what, you, I would just say, what I would just you say asked. What I would just say is that of all the people I know, and I have friends who like darts, I don't understand darts. I don't understand why anyone want to watch it. Um, but Matt Withers is a very sharply dressed, he's got a beautiful suit on, lovely brogues, very... Sh- I cannot imagine you in that baying crowd of darts fans. Matt, do you find it hard to throw the dart when you're like wearing like a full suit in terms of getting like, the arm extension? I'll, I'll, like, have to, I'll send you the pictures of me playing Please do. I, I, I look forward power. to receiving them. Uh, and also, I mean, we'll leave it after this, but the, the BDO crowd... You're right, we will. <laughs> it, wasn't, it, it wasn't the kind of braying crowd you see at the PDC. If, if the PDC is kind of like Glastonbury, full of people who've gone for the boozing and aren't really that interested in who's up on stage... I bet BDO, you go to Glastonbury in a suit, don't you? No, the, the, BD, the BDO was very much more like a county cricket game. It was there for the right. connoisseurs of the game, oh, you know, I just see. gentle drinking throughout the day rather than <laughs> pouring in. I love in. that this started out as a prediction question about Brexit and this is what we've got <laughs> to, and I'm very happy about it. 
And do you know what? I don't want the Brexit predictions because there's someone far more interesting for us to speak to now. Thank goodness. Um, Jason Solomons has joined us. Jason, are you there? I am. I am. I'm oh. listening. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking. I, I never know with darts whether I should be left-handed or right-handed. I'm equally rubbish with both. I don't there's a certain skill I've got. I, I, what I would say, Jason, is put the darts down and go back to the bar if you're offered uh, to oh, play that, darts. Then I'm definitely left-handed. With that point, <laughs> that's definitely left-handed. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Jason. It's an absolute pleasure. Jason, of course, is um, one of the UK, one of the world's most respected uh, film critics, general, just man who knows everything about movies and the moving picture. And we're always delighted when you appear in the New European and next week in the print edition, um, you're writing about uh, this this Shane McGowan uh, film, uh, Crocker Gold. Just can you just tell us a little bit about it first? I think it's by it's Julian Temple, isn't it? As director, yeah, it's it. by it's by Julian Temple, who's you know hugely famous for documenting difficult musicians. Really, he he was he he's famous really for being a punk. He was the first person to actually put punk on on film. He was there when the Sex Pistols were playing and the Clash played at the ICA, and he he really documented those early scenes. And he and he made a film called The Great Rock and Roll Swindle, and then he made a documentary called The Filth and the Fury. Uh, he's probably most famous still for having made a film called Absolute Beginners, which almost sunk the British film industry in the 80s because it was so, well, it was it was deemed so bad. It's now obviously like all bad things got respectable over the years and it's quite fun. And it's got Bowie in it, uh, but he's gone on for a great career and making music videos for Bowie and uh, Duran Duran. And then, he, you know, he's had a great career making documentaries about uh like he did a great one called Oil City Confidential about Dr. Feelgood from Canvey Island. He's done one on Joe Strummer of The Clash. He's done Glastonbury, the festival. He's done Ibiza, the island. So difficult music, is musical subjects, is, is his thing. He's got a particular affinity with that. But he's a really smart filmmaker. And he's pioneered this this method of, of telling the story. And it's not just sort of hoary old rockers sitting in an armchair, wrinkled up and telling you what it was like back in the 70s. He, he uses archive to really conjure up the era and the people and the music that, that's with it. Because I think that's what, we all remember music in a certain, or song in a certain way. It's not just the, the song itself, but you remember where you were when you heard it and what it, the images it conjures up, the lyrics about it. And I think a song is always a product of its time. You know, yeah. the people that buy it and listen to it are as much important as the people who wrote it into the cultural heritage of that song and that's what Julian Temple does and that's what he does with Shane McGowan uh, who of course is the voice and the somewhat battered face of Christmas now with <laughs> he is and well, perhaps we'll get to that but you um you talk about he he makes these documentaries about potentially uh I, I don't know so difficult bands or I mean they don't come any more difficult do they than, than Shane McGowan just to explain a little bit how this happens because he refused basically to be interviewed by anyone apart from Johnny Depp. Is that right? <laughs> it's, it's just basically it. Yes. And Julian Temple told me that, uh, that uh, yeah, that, that Shane McGowan had asked him to do this film because he know, knew that Shane McGowan knew him a bit. Um, and he said, but I'm not doing any bloody interviews for you. James <laughs> thought, well, I, that's not going to be very interesting. But he did, he did manage to persuade other people to have conversations with him and that, that he would film those conversations. So that's how it was going to go down. And I think he started with Shane's wife, who Shane w would will have a conversation with. Uh, she's a sainted woman. God knows. And uh, <laughs> yes. I don't know how she does it. And it's, she talks to him like, he's, like, you're, like you're helping an old relative out of the bath or something. You know, it's mm -hmm. like, oh, well, sit down now. So there's her, Victoria. Uh, there's Bobby Gillespie of Primal Scream, who um, 
he's he's got quite a thick Scottish brogue, as you may know, and Shane's got this thick Irish brogue. I couldn't really understand a word the two of them were saying. And it's, but, they're subtitled, though, aren't they? Yeah, they're not, though. They should oh. be. No, I really was straining. Um, and then there's another conversation between Johnny Depp, who's a good mate of Shane McGowan's. They've been mates for 30 years. And Depp is uh, executive producer on this on this sort of mm. project as well. And he agreed to sort of, oh, yeah, I'll film a conversation with me and Shane and Julian Temple, you can film it. And uh, the story goes, according to Julian Temple, that they they set them down, Johnny and, uh, and Shane, and they, obviously they let them have a drink during this conversation. Um, and they were talking about, uh, you know, Oscar Wilde, and they were talking about Chris Christopherson, and they had a big argument about something else, nothing that was relevant to the movie. And this went on for eight hours, and the crew said, all right, we're going to go to bed now, we're going. And they all went, and they left Shane and Johnny in the same chairs. They got back the next morning to pick up the equipment, and Shane and Johnny were still going the next morning, all the way up till midday, sitting in the same chairs, but with more drinks. Uh, a mega session. So yeah, that that and they used about I think Shane Julian uh, told me they used about three. There was about three minutes of relevant material within all of that conversation. It, it's it's fascinating, isn't it? And I, I'm I'm deeply fascinated by um, by stories of uh, musicians, and especially they they do tend to be difficult, don't they? And as I said, none no of them come more difficult than than Shane. But why why is Shane McGowan afforded this kind of not quite national treasure status, but this kind of um, free pass, shall we say, when really he's just a drunk old wreck, isn't he? What, what does it come across? Do we find out in the film? Yeah, you know what? I, I'm, I'm with you. You're thinking, why have I got to listen to this bumbling nonsense? What, what's noble about it? What is the poetry in there? Is there a certain rugged poetry mm. to fairy tale in New York? And I think there is a bit of genius in that songwriting. Do you know what I mean? The characters yep. that he's created with Kirsten McCall, you know, they're, they're that 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 boozy, you know, romantic kind of, I don't know, what do we call it? Nostalgie de la boue, they would call mm. it in France. Sort of, you know, that kind of like grubby nostalgia. Uh, and looking at it, then I was thinking, why, why have I got to put up with Shane McGowan? I've always been a bit, you know, dubious about him like you. Uh, and then when you see what he's actually was trying to do with the Pogues, which was put a cultural revolution basically for Irish music, which has always been a bit like, oh, fiddly diddly dee and in the pubs in Kilburn and the Derby O'Gill kind of quaintness that that I think England likes to kind of put in Ireland, just kind of, to, as Julian Temple said to me, it's actually sort of to cover up the sort of atrocities and monstrosities that were going on there. So yeah. you cover them up in this sort of tartan, whiskey-soaked kind of, aren't they, quaint leprechaun kind of myth. Uh, and Shane rebelled against this and said, no, it's very serious folk music, you know, as, as important as the blues, if you like. So if you go to Ireland, uh, he is a god there. He is, uh, you know, everyone loves the Pogues in Ireland. Uh, and he's, he's sort of seen with the same reverence as your, your, your drunk poets like Brendan Behan and you know, Flan O'Brien and uh, uh, Stephen Man uh, uh, James Megan, who's one of his heroes, you know, that sort of James Joycean kind of uh, stream of consciousness. So there is a poetry in a noble poetry. He was trying to put Ireland back on a serious cultural position. Uh, and I think it's for that that we're trying to sort of, um, uh, sort of stay with him rather than the fact that, oh God, he might fall off, his, might fall off the stool in a minute and die or collapse before the end of this interview or maybe not make it to the end of the film. I mean, there's a certain ghoulish fascination in that too. You think, yeah. how on earth can he look like that? I had to check how old he was, to be honest with you. He's only uh, he was born on Christmas Day in 1957, so it's quite apt that he now is the, 
the, the voice of Christmas Day itself, I suppose. But, uh, you know, he does look, he looks, I mean, 80, I don't know, I don't know how people should look anymore, but he just looks like someone in, the, in a care home in one of those things you'd see on the, on the news about COVID. It just looks awful. But... But there is, I think, something interesting in this in this figure who's carved a niche out for himself through the punk era and and and, and really put Irish music on the on the map. I mean, in the 90s, you couldn't move anywhere here in America, Ireland for for you know being caught up in a Kaylee somewhere and everyone told yeah. me, you know, we all learn how to spell Kaylee. I mean, it took me a while to realize what that word was. But it, it, it you know, it became a sort of cultural person. So I think he was really motivated by Irish history. Where does it stand? And I've seen I've seen most of them. I mean, you know, you mentioned Rock and Roll Swindle, of course, and uh, Filth and the Fury. But wh- where does it stand in the sort of canon of? I hate the word rockumentary, but you know, this, this sort of musical, um, insightful films. You know, one step beyond the classic album on VH1, but um, you know, it sort of yeah. gets beneath the skin. Where where does it stand? amongst the others? Yeah, well, it's definitely a head and shoulders above that sort of classic VH1, you know, doc, because because of this use of archive that Julian Temple, you know, wafts in. You know, Shane is, you know, nothing if not a drunk romantic. He's romantic about Ireland uh, and this disappeared island that he, he grew up in. He says he grew up in. I mean, he had four or five, six years in it, maybe. Uh, but it was that rural island that was really hard scrabble and you know, there was no electricity, donkeys and carts everywhere, no cars. He really remembers that and sort of harks back to it. And there are lots of, fil- quite a few sort of archival films of that time that have been captured and they're inserted into this, uh, this Julian Temple movie too. He's equally romantic about, you know, the, the drunk nights out in Soho and the kind of drugs and the sex clubs and the 70s punk of Soho. Uh, and that's recaptured in the film as well. So that's why it's, you know, a step up, it's a definite sort of filmic brain at work here directing this movie. And I think, yeah, when you said earlier, why should we watch it? Because it's about Shane McGowan isn't really just about Shane McGowan. It's about Julian Temple and it's about you and me in a way. I'm not saying that you're as drunk as, as Shane McGowan or have ever been. The office party might be around the corner. I don't <laughs> <know>. <laughs> But it, it, it is sort of about growing up, about the history. You know, I mean, if you lived in London uh, at any point throughout the 70s or 80s, you were aware of the IRA bombing campaigns Mm -hmm. and at any moment a bomb could go off, whether you were underground, uh, you know, people did see cars flying in the air from random bombs. And I I myself was, as a young journalist, was set out for the city bombing. I remember that very well. Um, You know, I heard it as I was on Blackfriars Bridge. So that's in there that you know we're not Julian Temple doesn't sugarcoat that that IRA reign of terror was there so that's in there uh, punk is definitely in there and the, the way that that changed uh, attitudes and uh, a youthful attitude the building of the Barbican is in there that's where Shane grew up he had yeah. a flat in the Barbican with his parents one of the first people and that's a great modernist masterpiece and we see the architecture of that so it, in a way it's about the growing of the city the changing of the city uh, and his sort of affection for that that, that weaves in so it's a it's, it is more of just about one man, and that's why this is a sort of cut above uh, rock mo- movie because it's more it's more about how rock takes part of the social history and the, and the culture of our times. Yeah, and 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 obviously for those who don't know, Shane was uh, I don't think I'm not sure face is the right word really for the punk scene, but he he was um, he he was kind of the go-to man in the crowd, wasn't he back then? And he was very as a very very young man, as a sort of mid-teens really, wasn't he at the time? 
I think he must have been 15, 16. I was kind of shocked to see the footage uh, in the film that, you know, there's, there's the early gig of the, of, the, of the Sex Pistols and there at the front, pogoing away is this ugly, yeah. <laughs> I know, I'm not, I know, you know, I shouldn't, we shouldn't, but he's, not, he's no good looking guy, even at 15, 16. And, you know, punk wasn't about looking good. It was about, you know, uglifying yourself, you know, with the pink peroxide hair and the, all, the, all the blonde hair. And he was just dancing away. I mean, a quite angry face in the crowd. And Julian Temple shot, you know, thought, oh, that's a, that's a good sort of punk uh, groupie, if you like. Uh, and he had that footage of him and, and interviewed him afterwards saying, why do you like punk? And it was all about you know, sniffing glue and this. And it came a rather iconic bit of footage that, that, that uh, Julian Temple had. So, yeah, he was a, a poster boy for for punk fandom before he was a, a singer himself. And then, then he, he started up a band called the Nipple Erectors after that. So yeah, Shane was a, a, a punk and yeah, that's right. He was, a, he was in the crowd and there was a famous incident at the ICA, a Clash gig where Shane and his then girlfriend, I think it was a girlfriend, it might be just somebody met, were biting each other. Uh, and he was sort of trying to sort of slash and scratch at each other and draw blood. And, and she, she whacked him with a bottle and it drew blood. And, uh, and then I think she sort of licked his ear or something and a photographer caught it and in the NME. It sort of said, cannibalism at clash gig, you know, when the world was in a moral <laughs> panic about these punks and what they were going to do and how they were going to change our youth. There was cannibalism there. And Shane's earlobe was bitten off at this gig. And Julian Temple was at that gig, he confessed to me, in a rather famous incident. So, yeah, Shane McGowan's been... Um, been sort of shocking and and creating in a way if you if you if you say that punk is an artistic expression and you go to the down the Malcolm McLaren and the Vivian Westwood thing and say that it was all about you know, art rock in a way and making a protest and saying something socially then Shane's been doing that since 1976. Yeah and I mean he is a fascinating I actually have uh, quite a lot of time for him again I like the Pugs um, and uh, and I'm very much looking forward to seeing this film uh, I just think it's a, he's a, he's a strange character for us to all kind of he, he he almost seems cuddly, but of course he certainly is not, is he? He certainly is not. And I, I imagine you're right. You know, you think all oh, these this sort of avuncular. It is that strange attitude that you have to him. It's like, oh, isn't it funny these tales of you know being drunk and falling off? And, <laughs> oh, isn't it hilarious? And then you think, oh, there's a part of you that goes. Actually, that's not certainly not how we live now. And even at the top, you know, I mentioned Johnny Depp. You know, there, there's a sort of ghostly problem with Johnny Depp now, isn't it? I mean, yeah. we're, we're all sort of jumping on some sort of count, cancel culture bandwagon. He said, "Well, is it even right to even look at Johnny Depp now that mm. he's been sort of officially uh, branded a wife beater?" Uh, and and of course had had all his uh, you know copious drug taking and, and drinking exploits uh, put out put out in public in court during that court case against. Uh, his uh, ex-wife Amber, but you know, or is it you just kind of go, oh, it's just two old drunks. Shane's getting Shane gets away with it. I don't think Johnny really does. And we don't want to see Johnny getting drunk. We, he's he's a lot cuddlier, to be honest, than than Shane sitting there. And we think all of Shane's stories about, oh, I just told Elvis to Costello the f off and get out of the studio. Well, and then I threw a brick at him, and we're supposed to say, and that's all his punchlines are like, oh, you know, like in the Fast Show. Of course, I was very drunk at the time. Yeah. <laughs> So it tends to end like, oh, I just told him to bugger off, didn't I? And um, and and then he laughs, and you're supposed to go, oh, yeah, that's that's sort of charming, isn't it? <laughs> I, I agree with you. It's it's not always charming, but it, it, we, some people did live like that in the in the sort of slums and squats of London in the seventies. And there's lots of him sort of hanging out by King's Cross, sitting in a deck chair in his pants with his mates, you know, and they're smoking and drinking, and that you just think, oh, blimey, that looks a bit dirty and grubby, and 
God, I know where that spot is in King's Cross by the canal, and it's certainly not dirty and grubby now. It's all uh, Regent's Quarter and, you know, Cold Drops Yard and, uh, yeah. all, you know, tapas and uh, and smart beer. So it's uh, things have changed. And I think that is the point of the film, that things change over time. And we really follow this journey of Shane over time. And like you say, I don't think he's ever courted respectability. I think he would be horrified to be thought yeah. of as respectable. But there's a wonderful quote that I use. Um, in the piece from um, John Houston playing Noah Cross in Chinatown. And it's quite a famous quote that sort of says, uh, politicians, ugly buildings and whores all get respectable if they stick around long enough. And I think <laughs> that seems to be the case for Shane McGowan. I think you might be right. It's an absolute pleasure to speak to you, Jason. I just, while I've got you, I just wanted to ask you about... Um, the, the the debate about sort of straight to streaming and what the sort of future you see for, over the next few years for for our cinemas because obviously they've been devastated by COVID is, is this a, a real sort of turning point for them do you think do you know what I think we talked uh, what nine months ago everyone was talking about the new normal and that there would be a new normal and nobody had any clue what that would be and I think in certain industries we still don't know how that is. Uh, particularly in hospitality, but the new normal is certainly taking shape in cinema. And it's quite fascinating to see how it's done uh, over this last nine months. And the new normal is that a film will be both out in the cinema and on home streaming platforms. I've got no doubt about that. Now we've had Warner Brothers saying that all their films for next year will be on HBO Max in America and in the cinemas. And some people have got outraged about this. Christopher Nolan, for example, says this is no way to treat filmmakers. Uh, it's not about filmmakers, to be honest. It's about audiences. You know, yeah. I'm not a filmmaker, but I'm an audience. I want to see these films. Uh, and the only way to do that with any safety and certitude is to put them on home streaming platforms. And, and you know, I think it's amazing that it's been got, they've got away with it so long, these film companies, the film studios, having this, this, this sort of rather gentleman's agreement of this window that of 18 weeks before it goes in the theatres uh, and then on any sort of streaming platform or home entertainment. France has got it even longer, 36 months. I mean, I don't know how they've maintained that. Uh, it's all going to come tumbling down, starting starting now, really, starting with Wonder Woman uh, before before Christmas, and certainly in the new year uh, here and around Europe, you will be seeing films released. And people always say to me, "Oh, where's that on, Jason?" You know, like I'm a listings magazine or something. I don't know where <laughs> it's going to be on. Look it up. But now, people, I do have to know where it's on. You know, it, it and it, it's on on Amazon, on B, BFI Player, on Curzon. It's also on in some of your cinemas. So the the choice becomes, do I want to go out of my house, out, out of my sofa and get the experience in cinemas? How will cinemas get us to do that? Is, is it comfortable? Is it safe? Is it an extra experience to looking at it on your telly? Because, you know, a lot of people are fed up of watching telly and films aren't the same as, you know, watching a half hour of your favourite comedy show. But they don't all, you know, we've all got pretty big screens now. I'm sure everyone's just done Black Friday and bought themselves a sort of Christmas deal for like a 50-inch screen at home. They're not that expensive. The sound's great. And if you're up close, it's pretty big. So, <laughs> you know, I, I'm not against home streaming. A lot of people don't live near big cinemas and they want to find, you know, good European movies, for example. The best way to do that is, is through streaming on 
person or someone like that. So, yeah, that's what the future is. It, it, the future arrived really quickly and there was a, a little bit of protest about it, but not that much. You know, some of the filmmakers were like, oh, we can't have that. We can't be watching my beautiful photography on your iPhone. People aren't really watching things on iPhone. They, they, they're talking about home streaming, watching them at home, you know, and I think that's that's where it's going to be because you can't put the whole of the industry on, on hold. And we're all used to what the last nine months, we've all got really used to watching things at home. We, we used to seeing movie stars in our lounge or in our front room you know that they didn't used to belong there I was a bit oh get out I want to I used to but my I always thought the job of a film critic or a film fan was to go to the cinema and disappear into that world rather than them coming in to invade my privacy in my front room yeah. but now I've got used to that I've, I've changed the contract and I think that's what the, what the what the future is here across Europe uh, we're going to get used to it and uh, I know, uh, you know, I love an old movie house like anyone else. And I love them. I think they're the sort of a lifeblood of the town centre, whether you're in Norwich or whether you're in, you know, Brighton or in, you're in Leicester Square in London. But I do think that that's just, a, you know, it's going to slightly be uh, a less, uh, you know, a less common experience of going to the cinema. But I think we'll still go. Uh, but I also think it's great to be able to watch the, the, the films in the comfort of your own home. I really do, without people walking in front of you and you know being late and smelling of nachos i think it's good <laughs> jason it's an absolute pleasure thank you so much for coming on your piece uh crocker gold um uh, your piece on crocker gold will be in the new european next week i'm told thank you so much for coming on that was a pleasure lovely to talk to you that's jason solomon's what do you think about that you two are quiet it's enjoying it <laughs> To be fair, I, I, because of a, a number of things, including the review that I got, I, there was a couple of moments to interject and talk about Irish-related matters, but I held my tongue. Yes, if, if I presume the dear listener does not read the reviews on uh, Apple, but we have a, a behind-the-scenes man, Pete Raven, who does send us the odd review, and there was one that says, could Cash stop telling us all the time that she's Irish? Um, so it probably, probably was best you sat that one out. Can Cash. I just defend myself on that, though? <laughs> what, you're I mean, not Irish? No, but like <laughs> when I initially came on the pod to do a guest slot, it was on the basis of subject matter relating to Ireland, and then obviously... Then after that, I, I feel like the guy's uh, assertion that it was every five minutes is a bit ridiculous. <clears throat> but well, I, yeah, I, that that was the only part that I wanted to defend. I I take sanctimonious as a compliment. Cash O'Boyle, I think we should. Um, I think you should soften your accent as as I have softened my northern accent into this now received pronunciation that you hear. I think you this should. This is my. Same. This is softened. <laughs> I know, I can imagine, I can imagine. This is softened, like if, when I go home, it's like you, you sound English. Yes, I get that as well. I am, I, you know, I don't know which way to jump, guys, I really don't. Whereas Matt Withers, Esquire, with his beautiful, um, beautiful received pronunciation and uh, three-piece suit on. Um, playing darts doesn't have any of that problems when he returns home. Um, should we take a little break and then we must talk about the vaccines before we get to cash and burn. From true crime to football, Brexit to folklore. For more great podcasts from Archant, head to audioboom.com slash channel slash Archant. Welcome back. Uh, right, we we got very quickly because you're already asleep, dear listener. Um, but it, it, uh, but uh, we do need to talk about vaccines because there is a glimmer of hope, isn't there, Cash? There is indeed. Yes, there's um, obviously the first vaccines were administered this week. Um, 
there's a lot of like fanfare there's a lot of excitement and I, I personally like I know a lot of some people are like anti-vaxxer some people are anti or there are some people are worried that's been rushed through and everything and I'm not dismissing the latter particularly as a, you know as an, an irrelevant concern but just to see someone being injected and you know to see that action it's like oh well this could be the thing that starts to you know curb the loss of life so that that for me was a really heartwarming heartwarming image yes i agree and i think it, a lot of people i've heard it a lot and i think i think it tends to be and i was i was writing this earlier and i think it sort of um it, it sort of stuck in the, in the front of my mind a lot of people saying oh we can start to get back to normal we can start to have parties again we can start oh. to but but the thing is actually for the people who have been vaccinated this week it, it, it's about more than that actually mm. because they 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 are or they tend to be frontline workers of course are getting the vaccine as well but they tend to be people who are very very um vulnerable so for them this is li- literally <laughs> you know the difference between them potentially not being around and being around it's not just about that they can go to the pub yeah. Um, this is far, far more important. So yes, it, it, those images were have been fantastic this week. I love the fact that the second person vaccinated was called William Shakespeare. I don't think we need they to blatantly that. blatantly did that. That was blatantly a PR move. <laughs> well, perhaps, but even looked like him. <laughs> he actually looked yeah, that, like was, that was weird. I was like, this is like a real commitment to the strategy. It looked like him. Why is um, such a ruffled collar? <laughs> I mean, it's much as it's a really, it's a really good... Um, piece of news and obviously all the you know William Shakespeare getting injected is just narrative gold can we take a moment just to question the crying by Matt Hancock not that there's oh. anything wrong objectively with someone crying and particularly I'm a big massive advocate of male emotion however that was ridiculous and they clearly did not teach amateur dramatics at the school he went to he has been desperate to cry and oh, I remember desperate. I remember Gordon Brown's PR team trying to get him to shed a tear about um, a very emotional subject way back sort of 10, 12 years ago, and he wasn't having any of it. And then he finally did. But Matt Hancock, I mean, it was like comedy tears. I was expecting, you know, they were sort of coming off his face like a cartoon. It was um, just so ridiculous. Yeah, it was, it was, it was silly. It was really silly. They, I, I was, when I heard that William Shake, my mother actually, <laughs> Um, sent me a message, William Shakespeare has been vaccinated and I thought oh my god it's finally happened she's lost it uh, but then I wondered maybe they should have got loads of uh, sort of famous British like people playwrights could, yeah no well no we could have had Winston Churchill's up next and we've got we've got Vera Lynn she's third in line for the vaccination it reminds me of um, when I worked at a, a regional newspaper many years ago and it was a world cup or something like that and we found people who lived in the town who had the same name as England footballers, famous England footballers. So we got a we got a Bobby Charlton and we got a Peter Shilton and we got them to do a team photo. It was brilliant. It was a baby and it was an old boy. It was fantastic. I thought maybe that's what we should have done for the first vaccinations. Strong, yeah. Don't, don't come back until you found Jaden Sancho. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's in Germany right now, so I think there he's. Handling his own vaccine. I don't know. I don't actually know where Germany is with the vaccine. I'm not actually 100% sure. Well, it's EU, so they, they've got so many regulations, Cash. They won't be getting a vaccine for another 10 years. I think we've all established <laughs> that leaving Europe is a really good thing, and we're really excited they'll about be, it. They'll be arguing about sausages before they get to vaccination. <laughs> <laughs> um, any final thoughts, Matt, on the vaccinations? 
Um, not much to say other than, you know, it's good news. We can all agree it's good news. God knows I've been a, a, a strong critic of the government's uh, handling of this, this uh, outbreak and, and will continue to be so. But, uh, yeah, let's just bask for a little bit in, in what is overwhelmingly positive news. Agreed. And I imagine with your advancing years, Matt, that you'll probably be getting yours in the next week or so, yeah? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I'm that much older than you. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm like last on the list, but I'm very it's content just, with that. That's fine. It's just the monocle and the cane. The that monocle. Matt, <laughs> maybe advance your years. Um, uh, Cash, it's that time of the week. Take it away. Mm. All right. So Crash and Burn this week. Um, people probably will know this person. Uh, will Noland. People familiar with him. So basically, he was a master of English at Eton, who was dismissed um, about a week, about just over a week ago from his role at the school because... He um, posted a video called The Patriarchy Paradox on, well, it was going to go on the school's um, video channel, but it, it never did because of the, its content. But basically the video, um, well, essentially it just went down this route of um, questioning whether the concept of toxic masculinity is real. Um, but I'll just give you a few little sound bites from it that made the video so controversial and sort of informed his sacking. So he said, um, one of the quotes he refers to is, Rape is not a unique claim for male oppression of women because male on male rape in jail dwarfs those or male on female rape outside outside of it. He also wrote or he also said and purported in this video that women's honor is tied to ancient standards of sexual impropriety. And he also said that male aggression is biological and in fact um, is biological and therefore um, is, is not ever a bad thing. Um, and then he also said that men do all the hardest work and that women basically would be absolutely nothing without without men. And that, that's just a few of the sound bites. And the reason that he's my villain of the week beyond the fact that obviously his views are very, um, well, I mean, each to their own in terms of uh, and your opinion. And the, the whole discussion has become much more around freedom of speech versus when can that right um, be, I, I suppose, circumvented given the contents of, this freedom of speech and so beyond the fact that the views in my view are pretty abhorrent uh he is my villain of the week because he has been he has been sacked he's been dismissed he is seeking obviously um he's appealing that as is his right through the appropriate employment tribunal channel employment tribunal channel pardon me but what he has actually asked for as well is for his eaten uh connections in inverted commas to law to help lobby parliament members so they could lodge a petition for a personal act of parliament to reinstate him at Eton. So he obviously posted this video and I'm not gonna go over the views again, but I, they're obviously awful. In my opinion, they're awful. But the fact that given where we are with coronavirus and with Brexit, parliament is a little busy. So I don't feel that it necessarily has the time to essentially pass an act that would reinstate one particular guy into his role on the premise that he feels his freedom of speech has been oppressed. And what's interesting is that he the reason he's been sacked is because he didn't take the video down from his personal youtube channel despite being asked to and so it's it's come and it's sort of come down to that really but yeah so will nolan is my villain of the week because of his of the abhorrent views that this video expresses but also the fact that he thinks his personal plight is enough to get parliament to act and have him reinstated well i'm a big fan of freedom of speech but yeah, me um, too. Me but too. with with it comes um comes uh, a, a, a certain responsibility and also 
if you, you know, you should be allowed to say whatever you want, but do expect me to call you a prick um, if I disagree. And I certainly do. Cash, I think that was a, 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 a perfect way um, to drop a pillock from a greater height. Well done. Could I just add, mm. uh, you know, we're a serious analytical um, podcast here. <laughs> Uh, and I was I was reading this and, and, and following um, this story, and I don't think he's ever kissed a girl. I mean, he's married with five children. Oh, okay, I missed that. Oh uh, yeah, but I mean, you do, that that's not how kissing. That's, he doesn't, that's he... exactly that's not how it works, Cash. I mean, we can have this discussion off air if you want. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think so. I mean, why? Because I, I feel like there may because obviously I've expressed this this opinion. There may be you know the odd listener see review man in far flung wherever it was. Um, that may be like, oh, you will, you will think that because you're a woman. No, I, I think that the you, views in that video are abhorrent because they are. It's nothing to do with my own personal gender. It's to do with the fact that, as um, Richard said, freedom of speech is incredibly important. But as with anything, as with freedom of speech, it's not just, it's not absolute in the sense of you can say whatever you want without without consequence or recourse. And that's basically just, sorry, what I wanted to emphasize because I know that dropping this particular pillock from a great height puts me maybe in the firing line to for criticism that oh you know you, of course you're not going to agree with this guy and his views because obviously they are largely um sexist and you know misogynistic toward women so that's all i wanted to emphasize because i feel like that's something they're that not just leveled his, at me they're not just his views are they I mean it's classic you know you're entitled to your own opinion but you're not entitled to your own facts there's there's a lot in what he said which yeah. is completely unempirical it's the difference between saying i think basketball is brilliant and expressly saying basketball is the most popular sport in the uk you know and that's yeah, a no, exactly. trite example but there's a lot of stuff that he says which yeah. is demonstrably untrue that's where it falls down. I know we're we're way over now, and I just the one final bit, and it just extends from what Matt said in the video. He, as I mentioned before, makes the the claim about um rape not being indicative of oppression of women because of the male on male rape statistics in jails. That's factually inaccurate. But then when he's questioned on this in the comments section, he then writes that the only serious scientific studies ever done on the subject estimate that between 40 and 60 percent of rape accusations are false which is also factually incorrect so just to illustrate matt's point that a lot of what he said just wasn't factually substantiated whatsoever <clears throat> okay two points i want to make matt have you got a basketball net in your front room as well <laughs> um i haven't um no it doesn't it doesn't really lend itself to a basketball okay, well, court this room mrs matt i think he's hinting <laughs> at what he wants for christmas and um and sorry this chap's name escapes me cash what's his name will nolan so uh no k-n-o-w land and the will... name and, and the name of his youtube channel is nolan knows <laughs> oh honestly <laughs> and he looks like you i can sort of see what you mean matt in terms of like he looks like he's never kissed a girl because he really does look like he's never. But he has a wife and five children. But again, doesn't mean that they've definitely kissed. Will Nolan, congratulations. You are the subject of this week's Cash and Burn. And you've also kissed one less girl than Katy Perry. Um, what, <laughs> what an absolute pleasure it has been. Thank you so much to Jason Solomons, who is um, one of my favourite writers in the New European when he... When, he, when, when his name is atop an article, it is always worth reading. So check that out next week. This week's um, print copy is available now. It's £3. Head out and buy it in a safe and socially distanced manner. Or head to the website and subscribe. 
uh, that will keep everyone safe and it will mean that we can carry on doing the journalism we love and that does very much include this podcast uh, Cash an absolute pleasure as always thank you very much oh thank you Matt thank you very much it's been a pleasure we will return next week with or without a Brexit deal um, until then Mr Campbell please play your bagpipes here you go sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game, and it's good for you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com So, Retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Monday, it's the anniversary of kids' classic, The Very Hungry Caterpillar. On Tuesday, how Rockford became the cheese of kings. On Wednesday, we meet the Jobs and Wozniak of the 1800s. On Thursday, the history of the YMCA, from the City of London to the village people. And on Friday, the edgy musical that made Greece the word. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes each weekday, wherever you get your podcasts.